0: Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. On with the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was February 19th, 1942. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor a couple of months earlier, the citizens and government of the United States became frantic. They were increasingly distrustful of the many Japanese immigrants and Japanese citizens in the country, believing they couldn't be trusted to remain loyal to the U.S. over Japan. In many people's minds, people of Japanese descent were a threat to national safety and security. As a result, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the Secretary of War and military commanders to set up military zones that anybody could be evacuated from. The executive order was framed as a measure necessary to protect national security during wartime, since the country was now vulnerable to attack. But what the order actually did was take advantage of the public's escalating fears of Japanese Americans' involvement in the war and use it to put them in concentration camps. The passing of Executive Order, 9066, was largely precipitated by the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But resentment of foreign nationals and Japanese immigrants in particular had already been growing steadily by the time FDR signed the Executive Order. Before the 19th century, Japan didn't want much to do with Europe or its colonies. But by the 1800s, Japan had begun trading with the United States, and Japanese people were immigrating to the U.S. and other places as temporary laborers. At the same time, the U.S. was barring other Asian nationals from entering the country. The Chinese Exclusion Act, passed in 1882, banned immigration from China to the U.S., And prohibited all chinese people in the u.s from becoming citizens the law partly had to do with the high unemployment and low wages in the u.s which were blamed on chinese laborers but it also had to do with prejudices white americans had against chinese people all of this is to say that there was a precedent for restricting immigration from asia by the time the U.S. government began placing limits on the number of Japanese people that could come to the U.S. And in 1924, the government passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which set immigration quotas and effectively cut off the stream of Japanese people immigrating to the States. People who moved to the U.S. from Japan couldn't become citizens, although children born to Japanese people in the U.S. received birthright citizenship. Even so, most of the Japanese people who moved to the U.S. settled on the West Coast or in Hawaii, building up their own communities with their own schools and businesses. And a lot of these communities were doing well. But when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941 in the hopes of destroying U.S. military forces in the Pacific, the U.S. was compelled to enter World War II after years of trying to avoid being hands-on in the conflict. At first, there were appeals for people to remain calm. But soon enough, the government began targeting thousands of foreign nationals who it believed to be a threat. Many of the people who the government considered enemy aliens had done nothing that would legitimately earn them the label of enemy. Regardless, they were still sent to camps, jails, and prisons under suspicions of espionage, sabotage, and any other activities that could aid Japan in the war. And as more people were locked up, as the media amplified false reports of Japanese threats, and as actual Japanese military threats were posed, the public grew more fearful of Japanese people the public and the government began supporting the idea of the mass incarceration of people of Japanese descent. In the beginning, the Justice Department was against mass removal and incarceration since it was unconstitutional. Many government officials opposed the measure, but the government went forth with the plan anyway. Strategist Carl Bendetson proposed skirting that tiny problem of unconstitutionality by giving the Secretary of War the authority to set up military zones and remove people from those zones at will. And Executive Order 9066, authorizing the Secretary of War to prescribe military areas, was passed on February 19, 1942. The order also said that the government would provide for residents of any such area who are excluded therefrom such transportation, food, shelter, and other accommodations as may be necessary. Since the act didn't have enforcement provisions, the government also passed Public Law 503, which penalized people for entering, leaving, or committing any act in an exclusion zone. And on top of that, FDR also signed Executive Order 9102, which created the War Relocation Authority the body in charge of creating and overseeing the internment camps. The whole West Coast was an exclusion zone, which meant that a bunch of Japanese people were required to leave their homes. But many couldn't afford to leave or faced resistance when they did. So they ended up being forced to leave. They were sent to temporary locations like horse stables and racetracks, then to concentration camps in remote areas, where they had to work. Everyone of Japanese ancestry in the zones had to go, including people who were sick in hospitals and children in orphanages who just looked Japanese. The people who were incarcerated in concentration camps were guarded and not allowed to leave. But even though a lot of people didn't like having the camps in their area, most people still supported removal. And all this was being done under the guise of safety and the best interest of the country. Japanese people needed to be evacuated and moved to more secure locations for their own sake and the nation's sake. After the war ended, the concentration camps started closing, with the last one shutting down in 1946. In 1948, People who had been incarcerated were granted $38 million in restitution. And in 1952, Japanese immigrants were able to become U.S. citizens. The U.S. government did admit to its mistakes and apologize in the 1980s, but Japanese people's lives had already been hugely affected. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about Executive Order 9066 and Japanese-American internment, listen to the two-part episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Executive Order 9066 and Japanese Internments. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, And I hope to see you again tomorrow for more tidbits of history. Hello, hello again. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class, where we examine the past from the present. The day was February 19th, 1963. Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, was first published. The book is credited with sparking the rise of second-wave feminism in the United States. Betty Friedan was a writer and an activist. She worked as a journalist for leftist and labor publications for a while, and she worked as a freelance writer for different magazines. Friedan got married in 1947 and had three children. After her first child was born, she went back to her job— But after she got pregnant with her second child, she lost her job. At that point, she stayed at home to take care of her family. But she was not completely satisfied with her life at home. She wanted to know if other women felt the same way. Ferdinand was a graduate of Smith College. When she attended her 15-year reunion at Smith in 1957, she surveyed her fellow college graduates. She asked them about their education and how satisfied they were with their lives. When she found that other women also felt unfulfilled in their lifestyles, she decided that she wanted to publish her findings. She interviewed more housewives and did research on psychology and other relevant fields. Her work culminated as the book The Feminine Mystique, published on February 19, 1963. The term feminine mystique describes the assumption that women would be satisfied with housework, marriage, children, and their sexual lives alone. The idea was that women should be content with the work they did in the domestic sphere and did not need fulfillment through education, careers, or politics. The book argued that many housewives were unhappy despite having lives that seemed fulfilling from the outside. In the introduction of the book, Ferdinand calls that unhappiness the problem that has no name. Ferdinand used statistics, research, and anecdotes throughout the book to argue her point. She said that women wanted more than just a home and a family. She pointed out how the media promoted the idea that women were happy in the home and unhappy in their careers. She noted how the idea that women were naturally mothers and caregivers was perpetuated. The book also linked the idea of the feminine mystique to post-World War II expectations and to the promotion of the idealized nuclear family in America during the Cold War in the 1950s. Friedan turned to interviews to show that women were often unsatisfied with performing traditionally feminine roles and used coping mechanisms to get through their feelings of unhappiness. The book aimed to dispel the myth that women were fine with their domestic roles. Friedan claimed that the feminine mystique limited women's, quote, basic human need to grow. She encouraged women to seek new lives that incorporated education, careers, and social roles, and to rid themselves of the idea that housework was a career. The book was popular and inspired many white middle-class women to take up the feminist cause. It was an influential text in second-wave feminism, which had broader goals and was less essentialist than first-wave feminism. But the book's legacy is complicated. It received pushback when it was published— and criticism of its messages and impact continues today. Some of the criticism levied relates to its limited white upper and middle-class perspective, to Friedan's own involvement in leftist politics, and to the inaccuracy of some of the research used. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Wanna impress your internet crush? Show them your history smarts by sharing something you learned on the show, don't forget to tag us at TDIHC podcast. Or you can go the old fashioned route and send us an email at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you same place tomorrow.